Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed On today's California Report magazine, what is the California dream? Who gets to dream it? And is it alive for everybody? California dream is to expose our children to arts, to culture, to music, to have high-quality libraries, to have communities that are safe. And we have lost a lot of that. We'll hear about how Proposition 13 has reshaped dreams for neighbors on one block in Oakland. And how the California dream brought a young Filipino immigrant to the Valley of Heart's Delight, now known as Silicon Valley. Just because you were a migrant farm worker didn't mean you didn't have style. One of my favorite pictures of you was taken in a downtown San Jose photo studio. You and a friend in sharp suit suits with pointy lapels. But first, the dream of getting a four-year degree after spending time in prison. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. A big part of the California dream is the promise of a good education and access to California's universities and colleges. Well, for people who've spent decades behind bars, that dream has been hard to reach. Many community colleges now offer classes inside California prisons, but Cal State L.A. offers more. Incarcerated students can work toward a B.A., and they get critical support when they get out. KQED's Vanessa Rancaño tells us about a burgeoning prison-to-school pipeline. Practically the first thing Charlie Prapatnanda did when he got out of prison was vomit. That car ride was was not cool. (laughs) After 22 years inside, hurtling down the freeway at 70 miles an hour was overwhelming a feeling he'd have again and again in the coming days and weeks as he learned how to send text messages, use Facebook, and reconnect with his family. But the day he got out, Prapatananda knew there was one place he'd be able to get his bearings. So after puking on the side of the road, he headed to the Cal State L.A. campus. I went and got my student ID that same day. I mean, that was just, that was unreal. My hair was messed up, but these things happen. (laughs) Prapatananda had never set foot on the campus. But for the last four years, he'd been taking Cal State L.A. classes in prison. So he knew when he got there, he'd find familiar faces, professors, administrators, and guys he was in prison with, like Jeff Stein. This is our admin building. Stein got out six months ago after serving 10 years. Prapatnanda originally had a life without parole sentence, which got commuted. He had just been out two weeks when I met them, so Stein was still showing him the ropes. Library's here on the right. Hey, Michelle, what's up? I started my first class yesterday. I'm in class with Jeff, and uh, me and Jeff are probably 
the two oldest students in that class because every time Jeff makes references, the rest of our group is just looking at, at each other like, what is this dude talking about? <laughs> at 43, Prapatananda has lived more of his life in prison than outside. It would be so easy for things to go wrong here. About half of people coming out of California prisons end up getting convicted of another crime. But school is a powerful tool against those odds. Taking classes in prison cuts the chances of getting locked up again by more than 40 percent. For Stein and Prapatananda, the chance to work toward a four-year degree in prison was transformative. That feeling of knowing somebody believes in you and it sees value in your life, it, <laughs> it's a lot, you know what I mean? And um, so it's, it's, very, um, it's very moving to know. Did you have that support? On campus, Stein and Prapatananda are trying to encourage others the same way. They're part of a small but tight group of 17 formerly incarcerated students who help each other navigate life post-lockup. The group's office is a small windowless room with inspirational posters on the walls. Well, we're in the basement, so there's nowhere to go but up. There's a little table where they meet with new students. This is where we do our intakes when people come out of the can. We just welcome them home, start filling out paperwork or finding out um, what we can do for them. From a question about where to catch the nearest bus or AA meeting to help getting a birth certificate or a ride to the DMV. Someone in our network will make it happen. So, yeah, hashtag Relentless Networking. So there's a lot of support on campus. But there's also support coming from the prison they just left. This is all recent correspondence from the guys just writing to congratulate me on a smooth transition or academic requests. Sometimes they ask him to print out and mail them journal articles. Without Internet access, they rely on outside help finding sources for their papers. When Stein first got out, one of the guys sent him a $960 check to help cover tuition. So the support goes both ways. In just a couple months, another former lifer is getting released. Stein and Prapatananda say he'll probably puke on the side of the road, too. And afterward, they'll be waiting to meet him right here on campus. For The California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño. That story comes to us as part of the California Dream Collaboration with public media outlets KPCC, KPBS, Capital Public Radio, and Cal Matters. And by the way, Vanessa and some of our other reporters will be on stage presenting stories about the California Dream November 21st at the Brava Theater in San Francisco. We're calling our event Dreaming the Golden State, and it will also feature storytelling from reporters like April Demboski. Pendarvis Harshaw and Peter Gilstrap, as well as music and dance. Tickets are free. Just go to kqed.org slash events to RSVP. We hope you can join us. Picture two identical houses. Same number of bedrooms, same number of bathrooms, right next to each other on the same block. In most states, homeowners in those houses would pay similar property taxes. But in California, identical homes can have wildly different tax bills. That's because of Proposition 13, which marked its 40th anniversary last year. People here pay property taxes based on the purchase price of their home rather than what that home is worth today. 
Last year, we spent a few months reporting on how Prop 13 has affected one block in one neighborhood in North Oakland. When the measure passed in 1978, this was a largely working-class African-American neighborhood. Now, more white people and more middle- and upper-middle-class folks are moving in. We brought some of those neighbors together for a little brunch, and today we're revisiting an excerpt from their conversation. Ken! Hello. Good morning. Hi, Michelle. I'm Sasha. So nice to meet you. Thank you for coming. Hi, Hi, We all sit around a big oak table to dig into something people don't usually like to talk about. Money. How much they paid for their house and how much they pay in property taxes. To get warmed up, I ask everybody to introduce themselves and say how long they've been in the neighborhood. Hi, I'm Michelle Krasowski. I've been in the neighborhood since February 2017. I'm a librarian specialist in support of adult services for the Contra Costa County Library System, and I am a renter in my apartment. My name is Ken Wilkins. I purchased a house in North Oakland in 1976. And can you tell us what you paid for your house? It's embarrassing for everybody. <laughs> now I paid $18,500 for the house. Hi, my name is Jazz Joel. I am a native Californian. I grew up in Sacramento and moved to the area uh, to go to UC Berkeley. Previously worked in education policy, and right now I work in tech at uh, Salesforce. And the last guest at the table is not a neighbor, but he knows a lot about how Prop 13 has affected Oakland. He was the assistant city manager in Oakland when the measure passed, and he became city manager three years later. I'm Henry Gardner. I have been in Oakland since 1971. I rented the first five and a half years. I've been a homeowner ever since, and I've been in my present home for 35 years. And I am a major beneficiary of Proposition 13, which has hurt the city tremendously. Back in 1978, nearly two-thirds of California voters supported Prop 13. Only three counties in the whole state voted against it. And even though it passed here in Alameda County, it didn't win in the city of Oakland. How aware were people when they went to the ballot box of what they were weighing? I was not then, nor am I now, a clairvoyant. But the record is complete. We said in unmistakable terms, in Oakland, that's one of the reasons Prop 13 did not pass in Oakland. We went from neighborhood to neighborhood. We said this library will close and will never reopen. We said these fire stations will close and they will never reopen. We said all of that. And here we are today. And did you vote for Prop 13, Ken? I think I did. But I really didn't think it out really well. I think there there should have been some other compromise, like uh, businesses should not have had that break at all. But I actually, I am happy to be under Prop 13. What What is your property tax bill? Uh, I think it was like 1800 If Prop 13 were repealed, just theoretically, but if, but if it were and you suddenly had to pay like what Jazz is paying in her property taxes, which is what? I pay about 13000 in property taxes. Yeah, I think I would move to Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> Ken's joking, but only kind of. Some California seniors might not be able to stay in their houses if they had to pay market rate property taxes. Across the table, Michelle says... As a renter, she feels like Prop 13 affects her housing options, too. Hearing as a renter and hearing what my 
landlord paid for his house and is paying in property taxes and knowing how much I pay for rent and how much little I have at the end of the month and what the mathematical difference is between all of those factors, it's shocking to me. I feel like I'm not like he's he's getting a lot out of this and I'm getting a lot sucked out of me in my life. <laughs> Sitting next to Michelle, Jazz looks empathetic. She used to rent in Oakland, but now she's a homeowner. She says she understands why it's important to pay property taxes to fund critical services in California, like public education. I feel very indebted and I feel much more willing to pay my fair share of taxes because I understand that my coming up out of poverty was in large part because of other people's tax dollars. Jazz got a needs-based scholarship to UC Berkeley. She says that degree helped her to get where she could buy a house today. I've had people tell me before, like, you kind of are the American dream. Like, I, my parents were immigrants. I grew up a family of seven on, like, you know, $35,000 income. And now I'm a family of one with, like, I don't know how many times that income. I do think I'm very lucky, but I also feel like it shouldn't be this hard. Oakland's former city manager, Henry Gardner, jumps in. He says a lot of us are grappling with whether the California dream is still alive. California dream is to expose our children to arts, to culture, to music, to have high quality libraries, to have communities that are safe. Those are all California dreams. It's not just ownership. It's an opportunity to advance, and we have lost a lot of that. Not all of it's due to Prop 13, but a lot of it is. Excerpts from a conversation among neighbors on one block in North Oakland talking about Proposition 13 and what it's meant for their finances, their community, and their California dream. And now it's time for another Letter to My California Dreamer. We've been asking you to send a letter to your family's original Californian, the person who first came to the Golden State with a dream. This week's letter actually comes from the California Report magazine's producer, Susie Racho, and it's to her father, Calixto. Dear Dad, you never really talked much. Mom was the social butterfly, hosting lively birthday parties and holiday meals. You were always quietly working in the background, cooking or getting the yard ready for guests. You came to California as part of a wave of young immigrants from the Philippines in the 1930s. You picked walnuts and other crops in the Valley of Heart's Delight, now known as Silicon Valley. But just because you were a migrant farm worker didn't mean you didn't have style. One of my favorite pictures of you was taken in a downtown San Jose photo studio. You and a friend in sharp suit suits with pointy lapels. Your shoes shined. I still have your shark skin suits from the 1960s, custom made for your 5'2 frame. Stature is just one of the things we share. 
After years in the fields, you were just one of many Filipinos who volunteered to join the military. It was World War II, but at 32, you weren't exactly a kid. I'll never know what motivated you to join. Was it a chance to show patriotism to your adopted country? After being sent to Camp Beale in Yuba County for basic training, you became a rifleman in the U.S. Army, part of a segregated unit, the 1st Filipino Infantry. I wonder how it felt to navigate going from living in San Jose's Japantown to fighting Japanese forces in the Philippines. You saw combat, but you never talked about it. You earned a Bronze Star, and after four years, you left the Army a U.S. citizen. As a kid, I remember finding long shell casings in a box of your cufflinks and tie tacks. I didn't ask where they came from. Like you, I've learned to be strong and silent. You went back to work on the farms, but you weren't just picking. You were also developing horticultural skills. Our house had persimmon, plum, and apple trees and a full vegetable garden. One of your last jobs was growing roses in one of the big nurseries in the valley. By the time you met Mom and had me and my sister Sandy, you'd been married twice and were in your 50s. Friends and teachers always thought you were my grandpa when you dropped me off at school. But you were my dad, an OG DIYer. There were trips to the hardware store and the lumber yard. I remember the pink playhouse you built for me and my sister, and the Saturdays you spent giving your friends haircuts in the garage. You were also the best barbecuer around. During Obon, you'd turn hundreds of pork and chicken skewers behind the grill at the Filipino Community Center. It wasn't until much later, after I began taking Asian American history classes in college, that I realized how much of your life mirrored what I was studying. Your history in the U.S. is Filipino American history. So it was my privilege, 27 years after you died, to represent you as you and your Filipino military brothers were finally awarded the Congressional Gold Medal for your service in World War II. Just like your military service, you never talked about your California dream. But once you settled in the Bay Area, you never left, and neither have I. So maybe the dream goes on. Love, Susie. That's the California Report's Susie Racho with a letter to her dad, Calixto. We've been asking you, our listeners, to share your letters to your family's original California dreamer. And we've gotten so many responses, we haven't been able to air all the letters we've received. But we've asked some of you to send us excerpts from your stories. The first person in my family to come to California was my grandfather, Ye Ye. He came by boat to San Francisco from Toisan in China and became detained on Angel Island in the 1930s. I knew Yaya up until I was eight. I remember the chair he used to watch TV in, and I remember his quiet, serious face. My dad, who's originally from Pakistan, first immigrated to Canada in the 1970s after college, hoping to find a good job. He had a pretty tough time there. Even though he had two master's degrees, he ended up working a lot of low-wage jobs. He faced a lot of discrimination, 
A lot of employers thought he was too foreign and that his degrees were too foreign. My great-great-grandfather landed in San Francisco in 1853 after spending 15 years as a merchant seaman sailing all over the world. He got the gold fever after working on a steamer carrying passengers back and forth from Nicaragua to San Francisco. When I came to California and the Bay Area as a young child, I was immediately smitten and knew that I had to live here. Luckily, the Golden State pretty warmly welcomed Dad. Really, moving to California, I think, ushered our family into the middle class. As a doctor, I serve a mostly immigrant population, and I think my patient stories often have echoes of my dad's. His journey fueled mine, and every day I get to care for patients who arrived in the Bay Area with California dreams of their own. I learned he came here at age 16. I learned that he spoke with perfect English. I learned he worked at restaurants across SF and opened a grocery store with my grandma. His California dream was to be able to provide a life for his six kids. Building on Yeye's dream, my dad has instilled his version of the California dream in me, to pursue something that will bring happiness and to do work with passion. Thanks, Yeye. That was Carmen Hom, Sarah Gamak, and Karen Berry, listeners who left us voice memos sharing stories about the California dreamers in their lives. Fellow, the idea is we don't believe in rainmakers. What do you believe in, mister? Dying cattle? You really mean you can bring rain? He talks too fast, he can't bring anything. I asked him, can you bring rain? It's been done, brother. It's been done. That's a clip from a 1956 film called The Rainmaker with Burt Lancaster and Catherine Hepburn. It's about a guy, a con man, who promises to bring rain to towns that have been stricken by drought. And it's inspired by a real story. There was a man here in California in the 1900s. His name was Charles Hatfield. And he claimed to have this secret mixture of chemicals that he could shoot up into the sky and make rain come down. He's just one of many historical characters who come alive in Mark Arax's book, The Dreamt Land, chasing water and dust across California. Today, we're digging into our archives to bring you a conversation with Mark Arax about how water has shaped the California dream. We first aired it when his book came out this spring. Mark is a former L.A. Times correspondent, and he's based in Fresno. Hey there, Mark. Hey, Sasha. So this book starts with your own story and the story of your grandfather, who came to California from Armenia after the Armenian Genocide. In part, he was drawn to California because of these descriptions in the letters that his uncle sent. Can you read us one of those letters? Here find an Eden of pomegranate and peach, grapes that hang like jade eggs, watermelons so capacious that when you finish eating their delicious meat, you can float inside their shells in the cool waters of irrigation canals. Armenians by the thousands have come. We are farming raisins. We have started two newspapers, a theater group, a literary group, and two coffee houses. You must see it with your own eyes to believe it. So, you know, those kinds of lyrical descriptions about how abundant California is have always been part of why people want to come to this state. And you write about this, you know, going back to the 1850s with these myth makers of California, you know, the guys who kind of sold people on the place. 
Grandpa, when he gets here, he sees that it's this kind of desert that's being reformed, and it's it's not quite how his uncle sold it to him or how the sellers and myth-makers of California were selling it to the world. And then there's um, James Hutchings, who starts this incredible magazine called Hutchings Illustrated California, a literary magazine that was explaining California to its new inhabitants and in, in that explanation was changing the place. You know, it was like the New Yorker of its day in the 1860s. And this was the hype that was selling California as the gold rush itself was selling California. What made you want to write about water and the California dream, Mark? I think all my books have been kind of stories of place. I remember these irrigation canals slicing through our neighborhoods. And I never thought, where were they going? You know, to whom were they going? But it kind of became a quest for you to figure out through history and now who owns and controls the water flowing through those canals. Well, look at the proposition of the first dreamers who came after our natives and seized this land from the natives was, okay, we're going to take this thousand miles of, of the edge of a continent and we're going to call it one state. And we're going to have to move the water from where it falls to where the people are living. And in some cases, that's a 700-mile hike. And, you know, how was that done? Well, we built the grandest reclamation project in the history of man, the Central Valley Project and then the State Water Project. Uh, But that dilemma still exists, which is, okay, you're taking from one place, giving to another. Uh, The people who live in the place you're taking are angry about that theft. And so there was baked into it all were these water wars that have become eternal. And then this system, which was so magnificent and still is, is cracking because of all the demands we're putting on it. Well, you just won a James Beard Award for a piece in the California Sunday Magazine that's actually an excerpt from this book about a modern-day water empire and America's richest farmer, Stuart Resnick. I mean, here's a guy who's never actually dug a ditch or planted a seed. He controls this empire from Beverly Hills. What does his story say about California's relationship to water now and about the California dream? The wheat barons, Isaac Friedlander, who was six foot seven, he lived on uh, Knob Hill in San Francisco, and so did James Ben Ollie Hagen. And they farm from afar the valleys. So Resnick is just a throwback to these men. And so he controls more land and more water than any single person in the state of California. And I say he, I should add his wife, Linda, because she is an equal partner. It's this remarkable story of how folks, you know, with enough wealth can capture the flow of rivers and the groundwater. And with that, plant you know, almond trees all the way out to the horizon. I mean, this is such a complicated history that you're untangling in this book, you know, going back decades, centuries, really. Uh, But as you say, water has always been something that people in California are fighting over. Where are we headed as a state when it comes to water and being able to fulfill the vision of the California dream, having enough water for everybody? Yeah, well, in my lifetime alone, This state has grown from 11 million people to 40 million. I mean, how many more can we take? 50, 60? These are the questions that we never start off with, but that is the question. Where can we get to? It's clear as you see the development of California in this book, you see that we've overdeveloped suburbia 
and we've overdeveloped the farmland. And the tool to do that was water. Mark Arex's book is The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California. Thanks, Mark, for joining us. Sasha, thank you so much. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our engineers this week are Katie McMurrin and Rob Spate. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. And our team also includes Julia McAvoy, Bianca Taylor, Asala Sanapur, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast. And I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.